Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. No lie, I am super excited for today's guest, music legend Peter Frampton. And we're going to start chatting with Peter in just a few moments. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Peter Frampton, he is one of the most celebrated artists and guitarists in rock history. In 2007, he won a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album for Fingerprints, and in 2014 was inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame. His album, All Blues, was number one for 15 weeks on Billboard's Blues Chart. In 2020, Frampton was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. His autobiography, Do You Feel Like I Do, a memoir, debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. And his 2021 album, Frampton Forgets the Words, was released to widespread critical acclaim. Later this year, he will appear on Dolly Parton's forthcoming album, Rockstar, which is coming out November 17th. And he's the only artist featured on two tracks. And after 47 years, Frampton Comes Alive remains one of the top-selling live records of all time, selling over 17 million copies worldwide. Peter, welcome into the back room. It's nice to be in the back room with you. I'm a huge fan, and I am not ashamed to say that for me right now, I feel like a teenage girl at a Taylor Swift concert. So that's a good thing. Let me tell you, you're not a teenage girl. I am not. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you're not Taylor Swift. And, no, but you might, I, you might, you might in your mind be at a Taylor Swift concert. I don't know. You know, I'm not inside there. So yeah, no, it's just uh, it is truly an honor to have you here. I grew up with your well, music and you. been listening to you my whole life. I was 18 years old with my '72 Mercury Montego, slipping that A track to Frampton comes alive. There might have been some marijuana involved, but I would just sit in my car for hours and listen to that. <laughs> And Humble Pie's live album, that was my 70s. Like a lot well, of people like a lot of people. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So you are on tour. How's that going? Uh, I am I'm on a hi- 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 hiatus mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh we did three two and a half week tours in the summer. It was unbelievably good. Um and uh so because it did so well and my my pinkies are still doing okay. Um, we're going to do another eight shows in November, so the states. So, yeah, I'm I'm very very excited to to be. I you know, in before COVID, when COVID shut us down, I thought, oh well, my my uh, muscle thing is going to, my IBM is going to get worse because we have we all have our life clocks, and uh, but I have this other IBM clock. Which is life clock is going up, <laughs> and and the IBM clock is going down, you know. So, but luckily it's so slow the progression. So I'm I'm just hopeful and lucky, and I I feel great. I mean, I'm just I can't wait to get back out there in November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking at the tour schedule, and I I'm gonna really try to maybe take a trip to Austin or or Nashville. I've never been to Nashville, but I've been to Austin. But it would oh, be, a man. be a hoot to see you. Nashville is at the 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 Church of Country Music, basically, or Church of Music, um, at the Ryman show, and that's the last date of the year. So, mm-hmm. hometown, everyone, apart from our drummer, we're trying to get him to move here, but 
no luck. Mm. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it'll be a fun gig. Yeah, I saw you in Vegas a bunch of years ago, and it was a spectacular sh show. What it was an incredible performance, and it was it was a lot of Thank fun. You. So I, I do hope I get a chance to see you again. Uh, and for those who don't know, when you refer to IBM, you're not talking about the technology company. You're talking about no. <laughs> uh, inclusion body myositis, which is the yes. progressive muscular degenerative disease that you, you were diagnosed yes. with in 2019. But interestingly, yeah. when I was reading up on it this week, I read a couple of things from one of your doctors who was explaining how normally it affects finger dexterity. And mm -hmm. he was positing that it's quite possible that because you are a guitarist and you've been working your fingers your whole life, that that's mm -hmm. actually worked significantly to your advantage yes. in dealing yes, with has. this uh, condition. That's fascinating. It's, doctor, it's my lady doctor who's, in, who's the head of myositis clinic at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Lisa Christopher. I call her doc, Dr. Lisa Christopher Stein, but I just call her Dr. Lisa. And... Um, she said that she learned so much from me for her other patients in as much as as soon as she came and saw me play uh, at a show, she said, and all the doctors that came with her from Johns Hopkins said, do that every day, whatever you're doing. Because, and so from then on, um, they, because we do lose uh, the movement, you know, um, and from then on, she told all her new patients or old patients, ask them, do you play an instrument? Right. And if someone said, yes, say, play it more. And then for those who didn't, they said, take up the piano right. or take up the guitar, you know, because it really helps. It's so, it really is a fascinating element to your story. It is something that's just innate in you that you've been doing your whole life, which in this crazy full circle kind of way comes back to really be a huge benefit. Um, yes. Great to hear that the tour is going well. It's great to hear that you're doing well. I wanted to ask you something that's either going to shatter an awesome memory that I've had in my head for about 45 minutes <laughs> or, or, uh, or not. But I'll lie. I'll think, lie. I think you and I met once. Uh, oh. Did you, back in the 70s, did, did you go to a, tr a club called Tracks on the Upper West Side? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So. So I, I, I was, uh, I think, 18 years old at the time, and I was working in a restaurant, and this friend and I, after our shifts were over, we were like, hey, let's go to Tracks. And it was this cool little club that nobody knew about except, like, musicians and music people. Right, right, right. One little door had a little plaque on it that said Tracks downstairs. And so I'm sitting there, and I say to my friend, is, is that Peter Frampton? Now, this was at the height of Frampton yeah, Comes Alive. Yeah, this was like 76, 77. Yeah, and so I'm like, is that Peter Frampton? Can't be, right? Is that Peter? And uh, you were standing like maybe four feet from the bar on the floor by yourself. Uh, I think you were pretty wasted. I was pretty yes. wasted. My friend was pretty <laughs> wasted. So I, I was like, and she's like, is that Peter Frampton? I was like, I think it is. And because I was pretty wasted, I had the balls <laughs> to go up to you and because I was a 19 or 18-year-old at a time, and I, uh, mastery of the English language was not strong at that time. So all right. I could muster to say uh, in my inebriated state was, Peter Frampton, you're awesome. <laughs> and you kind of just looked at me, and, you, and all you said was, thank you. And, I, <laughs> and then I walked away. And I was like, that's all I could say. In those that was days. it. You made my Easter. <laughs> and that was like a, it's a memory. And I always saw like, was that really Peter Frampton? 
So I, I had to ask you that because uh, I yeah I, no I, I I was probably carried out of there later <laughs> on that evening that same evening. <laughs> Did you go there a lot? Yeah, because my friend who I've just reconnected with uh, for many many years, Phil De Havilland, owned that club, mm -hmm. and that's where I met my second wife, and you know it all happened to tracks. So wow, yeah, it was, it was uh, one of those happening places. Well, I, I, I'm assuming that the memory of that evening is probably greater in my head for us than it is for you. Uh, I probably, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like that skit. You ever see that Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Chris Farley and Paul McCartney, where he's like, "Hey, yes, do you, do you yeah. remember yesterday?" <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I do. I do. So, um. I want to go back a little bit in time to when you were little, Peter. When did you first, I know you started playing music at a very young age, but when was the guitar, when did that become so prominent in your life and something that you knew this was going to be your your life? Yeah, um, well, I, I picked up the banjolele, which is a banjo-shaped ukulele my grandmother left in my attic for my father to get down for me one day when I was, my hands were big enough. So we were up there in the attic looking for our suitcases for our summer holiday. And um, I found the little case. I said, what's this dad? And he goes, oh, um, Nana wanted you to have this. Um, maybe one day you want to play it. So I said, well, can you play it? And he said, yeah. So I got it out and he, he did, he played guitar actually. And, um, and he played it to me as four gut strings, you know, like a ukulele. And we got it down and I started playing it when I was seven. And then by the time I'd learned the three songs he taught me, uh, which was Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, Michael Row the Boat Ashore, <laughs> and um, probably a Cliff Richard number or something. Um, oh, no, no, no. Freight train. Freight train going so far. Um, so I learned those three songs on the, on the banjolele. And then I said, dad, I need a guitar. This isn't, you know, I can't, I can't do the shadows with, with four strings here. So, um, those, that was our biggest instrumental band over there at the time, mm. Hank Marvin with the shadows. And, um, so yeah, so I got my first acoustic, proper acoustic guitar when I was eight. Mm -hmm. Any chance you could do a little Michael Row 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 your boat with the talk box right now? Uh, no, well, I'm, if I'm, it was set up, I'm kidding. It would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it would actually. Yes, I've always wondered, like, wouldn't it be great to just walk around all day one day with saying nothing but through the talk box? Like, that's your okay, only. Hold on, voice. hold on one second. Hold on. Let's do. I'll do this for you. You have um, a talk box right now. No, and in, in, in a way. Michael row the borders show, hallelujah. Michael row the borders show, hallelujah. Hold on. Now play that back. Michael row the borders show, hallelujah. Michael row the borders show, hallelujah. Hold on. That was probably one of the greatest responses to one of my idiotic requests ever in my life. So thank you very much for that. That was awesome. I think, yeah, you I think we just made history iPhone. here. 
<laughs> so, and you grew up with David Bowie. You went to school. Your father was an art teacher, and he was yes. in your father's class. And you guys used to just mess around with instruments during the day. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. At lunchtime, dad dad would have us put uh, our acoustics in his his office uh, first thing, and then lunchtime we would um, we would sneak them out of the the office and just sit on the art block stairs. It was a fantastic echo, all concrete, you know, in the stair stairwell there. And myself, David, and George Underwood, who I always mention because he was the third musketeer. Um, Dave, David and um, George were the closest of friends. Both of my dad's art class, and George was the one who did a lot of the artwork for David, like um, Ziggy Stardust cover and all that. So they were friends till we lost, you know, they were they were bosom buddies for lifetime, mm -hmm. you know. And and on that subject, we all know at this point that you know when when David died, um, he was kind of a really I won't say reclusive, but extremely private person. A lot of people in his life did not know he was sick, or especially no, we didn't. To, yeah, or didn't. even close to close to death at at the time he was. Why do you think at that point in his life that became? the path he chose, that he didn't want his friends and people close in his life to be a part of that final chapter that way? Well, because he was so private, um, you know, you tell one friend, they, they don't tell anybody, they tell somebody, and it would have got out that he was, he didn't want the pit. I don't think he wanted pity, right. you know, at that point. Um, he had the love of his uh, wife and child um, children, sorry, but a newer child, a younger child, but I'm sure that he spent a lot of time with his family and that's what he wanted to do. You know, he wanted to have a, he knew he had to know that he was at the end and he probably just wanted to spend it, you know, like everybody else does at home with his family. Mm -hmm. And we granted him, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why he didn't even tell George. I mean, who is the closest person to him? Yeah. You know, death is such a personal, an illness, and de but death and dying is such a personal thing, which is why, you know, in this country, things like assisted suicide, the Jack of Orkin yes. thing, like, it, people should really get to decide how they want to exit this planet, you know, how and exactly. where and with who. And But we tend to treat animals, our dogs, our pets, Kinda. More, more humanely than we do our, yes. ourselves in this country. Yes. Um, who were your early influences growing up? Um, well, it, it would have been the first two um, would have been uh, Cliff Richard and The Shadows. I mentioned them before because uh, Hank Marvin was the lead guitar player. He was the person that I wanted to be, you know. And um, <clears throat> and but at the same time, my father. Um, when we got our first record player, my father bought the Shadows' first album for me. I had all the singles ready to go, but he bought me the first album, the Shadows. And but then he brought home this other thing uh, that I really wasn't interested in at all. And it was the Hot Club de France, which my mother and my dad danced to, and was their kind of music. Uh, pre-war and, and post and during the war and post-war, you know, uh, and, uh, that was Django Reinhardt, um, and Stefan Grappelli. So, and I, it, it wasn't electric. Um, uh, and 
uh, it, it was jazz. What's even worse? You know, it's jazz and, and it's not electric. So I would run out of the room when my dad would put that. Oh, gosh. And then one day <clears throat> I waited a little bit and he put, he put it on after I played my Shadows record on a Saturday. And um, I'm going, wait a second, Dad, can you play that track again? The guy is incredible, you know, that I realized Django Reinhardt, and he probably is. Um, he He's one of the best guitarists there ever was, you know. And uh, so in in the same breath, I got I got my my uh, Hank Marvin album, uh, which I learned every every note on that album, and then Django Reinhardt, and I'm still trying to learn every note on that album because he's so good, you know, so... Uh, yeah, those were the first two. Then obviously, uh, Peter Green, Jeff Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, uh, um, Jimi Hendrix, mm -hmm. uh, the list, you know, every, all of them, Jimmy Page, whatever. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, I'm listening to Kenny Burrell with Jim, Jimmy Smith, um, George, an early 16-year-old George Benson playing with the Jack McDuff trio, uh, all these jazzers. Um, because the band I was in when I was very young, uh, I was like 13, I joined the band, semi-pro band. We did R&B, jazz, and pop. You know, we did everything. And so I had to learn how to be cover these jazz parts as well. Uh, because of my listening to Django Reinhardt um, and having an early love for him, then then it just was, you know, Wes Montgomery, uh, you know, uh, Joe Pass, uh, all, all these incredible players um, that, you know, say, oh, my God, I'll never be. Let me listen to him because I'll never be able to play like him. So if I can pick up a little bit from him, you know, so that's that's what I did. And it was a but then at the same time, all all the blues players from America as well. So you listen to everybody, you know, all the kings, B.B. King, Freddie King. Um, Albert King, Albert, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> all of the kings, you know, and um, and more and more and more and more. I mean, this goes very deep. And the Beatles so, were an influence as well, were they not? Oh yes, yes. I'm. I was thinking just just for guitar at that moment, but but oh no, I was in this band, the True Beats, and all we did was was uh, <clears throat> instrumental hits because at that time that's what they were: the Ventures, the Shadows, and then we did a little bit of singing. A Roy Orbison number here or there. And then the Beatles came out, mm -hmm. and we had to all sing. Mm -hmm. you know? And you got to know uh, and work with George Harrison pretty pretty early on in your career. Um, and you were on the All Things Must Pass album. And I, I wanted to yeah. ask you, because to really understand how amazing the Beatles were, and also simultaneously how incredibly gifted and talented Harrison was, is that he had that shit in his pocket, just walking around because there was no room for it in the Beatles. Yes. Like that right. when he left the band, when the band broke up, that that became his his debut solo album. Like where did this stuff come from? It is, it, and you see a little bit of it in the documentary on Disney. You know when he's mm -hmm. working out the song and he still hasn't gotten the lyrics yet. But it's like to have that kind of talent that that was just stuff that couldn't come out while he right. was in the band. Like, it's incredible. And that must have been an amazing experience for you to, to 
work with a Beatle, work with George, work with him on that album, which is just an incredible masterpiece. And Ringo was on drums, mm -hmm. too. You know, so um, with Jim Gordon from the... It was basically the um, the dominoes. They were all on on that that album. And then plus, because it was Phil Spector, killer producer. Um, <laughs> boom. <laughs> oh, boom. Yeah, sorry. Good. Good night, um, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there were two bases. Uh, we had one, two, five acoustics uh, at the same time, two pianos, two drums, two everything, you know. Hmm. And you go in there and you listen to it and it sounds like 90 people, you know. But yes, walking into the uh, mutual friend, he was actually, Terry Doran was actually working for George as his assistant. And um, he, we were in a pub in London. He said, you want to you wanna come and meet... Uh, George, I said, like, I'm nuts. I go, George, who? And he goes, um, Harrison. I said, okay. <laughs> so we, we wander down, we're on Wardour Street, and the studio down the alley off Wardour Street is Trident Studios in London. And so we walk in, and I'm petrified. Um, this is my first Beatle meeting. So, um, you know, it meant the world to me. And so the door opens to the control room and I walk in and George is over there <clears throat> uh, behind the console. And he comes, he looks up, he goes, hello, Pete. And I thought, wait a second. <laughs> is, is there another Pete in the room? <laughs> he means me. He's talking, a beetle is talking to me. Wait a second. You know. That's awesome. <laughs> And um, then he came over and this was, he, he was doing um, the very first production for the Apple label uh, for a record for Doris Troy and um, <clears throat> who wrote, uh, it was Stay, I think, one of the, I, I forget. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so um, he said, you know, came over as we started to talk, he said, do you want to play? And I, well, I said, now? So, and the, I, he said, uh, yeah. So he said, uh, we just finished a, writing a song for for um, Doris, <clears throat> Doris, me, and Stephen. I said, <clears throat> Stephen who? He said, oh, he's down there, Stephen Stills. I go, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so we go down. He hands me a Les Paul, which is now known as Lucy. It's the guitar that... Uh, um, Eric played on All Things Must I'm sorry, While My Guitar Gently Weeps mm -hmm. um, and gave it to George. So George hands me this guitar and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to look at Stephen Stills over here like this, you know, and, uh, and uh, he gives me the guitar, plugs me in a Fender amp and he says, well, here's the chords, you know, and so just, Good impression. I just, yeah, and so I just sort of, you know, learns it very quickly, and then we start routining it. And I get, I'm playing. This is the Beatles lead guitar player, um, and Steve is still right here. I'm just going to play very quietly, um, and uh, so, rhythm, you know. So George stops halfway through and he goes, "No, Pete, I want you to play lead." 
I said, mm. very good. So, um, so <laughs> there's me on this. The first track was called Ain't That Cute on the Doris Troy record. And that's me playing all the lead on there. Why do you think he didn't want to play lead? Well, he did play a little slide solo mm. uh, within the track, but he was, he, he liked my guitar playing. Mm. I, I know, but he was a fan of my playing. And mm. I didn't know at the time, but. So uh, anyway, uh, because he'd known what I'd played in Humble Pie. So. And um, did you know that that so, album was? I've always wondered when musicians are in a studio recording something, which 10 years, 20 years, 40 years later is a classic. Do you know at the time when you're recording, like when you're sitting there going, all things will spend. Wow, this album is going to be amazing. My sweet Lord. Like one song after the other is just incredible. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have that sense at the time, or you just a young guy who's like, ah, this this shit's pretty cool, but you know, it's just a gig for you. I'm just time. thinking. Obviously, this is. I mean, the music was phenomenal. Obviously, this is going to be a huge hit because it's George, you know. So I'm figuring that this is going to be a huge release. Mm. But you don't think about that really at the time. Maybe every day I left the studio because he invited. He and after the Doris Troy sessions, he then called me back a couple of weeks later and said, can you come and do some acoustic for me on my I love how you keep you know, going back but... into his actual voice. Do you do the other <laughs> Beatles too? Um, Ringo's lower. I'd have to, Peace and love, I can't dude. do it on demand. It has to just happen. Peace and love. Um, yeah, Ringo's down here. I don't know. That's not bad. Because I would say to Ringo, what snare did you use on Day Tripper? I don't know. I, I just played the, you know, I, Mal put the drum down and I played it, you know. So, uh, you know, so, but um, he's coming here to, to net Ringo's here the end of next week. So I'm going to get to see him. So. Mm. And so um, I, I, I literally can talk to you for hours. I know we, we have limited time. Mm. I want to ask you, uh, this kind of dovetails into Frampton Comes Alive, which, I mean, you've had a, a career that spans 50 years. You started out when, in smaller bands and kind of hit it with The Herd and then Humble Pie, which is... Hallelujah, I love her so. I can't get no doctor. I mean, those songs are amazing, especially live. And then you have solo albums. Some do better than others. But then this double album just comes out of nowhere. Safe to say a lot of people at the time hadn't heard of you. You know, I mean, I, I knew who no, you no, were. No, no. I was a big fan of Humble Pie. But similarly to the question I asked you about All Things Must Pass, did you have any sense leading up to the release that this would become one of the top-selling albums of all time and create this, I don't even know what to call it, this phenomenon that that album was? Uh, short answer is no, I had no clue. But I was following the template of, of Humble Pie. We had four studio albums, and the fifth one was, was Rockin' the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. And we were building up our following uh, live and then the Fillmore album came out and that one went uh, became a gold album, um, which was much more than we'd sold with any of the other four. And the same thing, I knew that from the pitch of the audiences when we were playing live, um, especially the night at um, Winterland, which is the ninety percent of the album comes from Winterland mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I mean, it was our first headline show in San Francisco, and they went berserk. Yeah, you you can hear it on the record. And um, so 
I said to the band, you know, after we came off and it was one of those nights when it was, we all go, I had the best night. And we all said that. It doesn't often happen when everybody has a great night, you know. And as a band, we had obviously the best night. And, um, and I just said, I think, I think we've got a gold album here. Mm. I think this is like humble pie. I think we're going to, this is going to be the best seller. But I had no idea, you know. Mm. I mean, it went gold in, you know, in about 24 hours. So uh, after it came out, um, which, which blew us all away. And then. Why, why do you within, think it was such a, the level of success it was? Was it just the time, the era? Like, how do you explain I, I that album? Definitely as, my as, time. Um, it was my time for something to happen. And um, that record, when you put it on, I don't care where you put it on, uh, whether it's a CD or a album or whatever, you smile. Mm. It makes you smile. And there's something that I bring to live that um, is about 100% more than what I what comes off a studio record for me up until that point. And, and it's, it's that thing that you can't put into words what it is, but um, there's a joy I and my brand band bring to each show. It's the same today as it was back then that um, I include the audience. They, they almost mentally step forward as it were, when we come on and, and, um, I, I really include them and I always have. And it, that's why it's such a special album. I think we captured that we captured enjoyment. We captured, um, em the emotion that the band were putting out and we captured the audience going berserk because mm -hmm. they could feel it. It's a feedback thing between the band and the performer and the audience and, and I have that down. <laughs> you do. How much do you think the talk? Well, I don't box... often play my. I don't often play my own trumpet. Sure. But as <laughs> you could, but you should in the November concerts. Concerts, you should add the uh, Michael Rowe your boat talk box to the playlist. Talk box thing. Yeah, yeah I should do that. The people, that's right, going right. to be a smash. Might be bigger than comes alive, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so, Michael yeah. Roy. Yeah. We'll have to put, we'll have to clear the publishing on that. It might isn't that like over a hundred years old or something? It might just be. Oh, uh, I'm sure it's you know, fair yeah, use. Yeah, I'm sure something. it doesn't have any. So nobody my, owns my that last one. question to you on uh, uh, comes alive is: there was a strategy of charging just a dollar more for that double album. Yes, uh, Jerry Moss. Wh where did that come from? Was that something you suggested, or the marketing guys, the suits? No, it was A and M for me was Jerry and Herb. Um, and Jerry helped me choose the front cover. Um, you know, those were the days when I was in the art department on, um, on the lot, which is now the Henson lot on in LA. And we had about three shots that we were, the art department and I were discussing. And the one I really liked was the one we used, uh, but it was this way. Mm -hmm. and we needed something that went this way. Mm -hmm. So that's when I called Jerry and I said, Jerry, could you come over to the art department and help us? This is the, this is the president of the company. You know, that's how available he was to all the artists. Mm -hmm. I mean, awesome. we've just lost him and, and it's a tragic loss. So, but, but, um, 
so he comes over and he looks at the pictures and he goes, oh, I like this one best. I said, so do I, but it's, it's, it's this way. It's, it's not mm -hmm. it's this way. It's not that, you know, like enough. He said, well, we'll turn the out. If you turn the album this way, it's a double album, uh, a gatefold. You can put it on the outside. Mm -hmm. I said, what a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. Mm -hmm. So that's how. It oh. When you look back on that album, do you ever stop and think like, do you ever see yourself in that way, having been a guitarist, like a journeyman guitarist for all those years, and all of a sudden you were, you were like the Mick Jagger, you were the front guy, you were the, yeah. the rock star. Had you ever envisioned yourself at that point in time as the front man, as the rock star that that album made you, in a sense? Well, before Humble Pie was in a band called The Herd, and I joined as the lead guitar player, and doing oohs and ahs as a background singer. And then we got these very high-powered managers in, in England, Howard and Blakely, and they wrote songs for The Herd, and they took us up to their office and they played the song. They said, here's the song, what do you think? Eh, it's okay, <laughs> we'll do it. And they said, well, Peter's gonna sing. I said, wait a second, I, I don't, I, I'm the, uh, Guitar player, ooh, ah, should be doo ah. You know, that's all I do, you know. And I said, no, 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 you'll sing. It was the, you know, mm -hmm. this. And they'd heard me sing and, and I wasn't bad. Right. So you had, you had the look. You had the look that they, yeah, the, the yeah. young girls wanted. It that's worked. right. It all worked. So I had experienced that kind of thing on a teeny bopper level mm -hmm. before in the hood. So it wasn't a surprise. Uh, well, I guess the the level was a complete surprise. Right. And um, some people who look too good um, are criticized because they obviously can't be good at that. They don't have any talent. So I think that um, I, thereby lies the rub for me in as much as um, the guitar playing Peter Frampton, which is what I'm always been, is just the guitar player, um, went out the window um, and the face took over again. And it's very hard to stop it. Um, once you're on the cover of one magazine, you look around and then you walk past the newsstand and, oh my God, I'm on the front cover of every magazine there is, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it was... It was overkill, you know, and turned me into this. Uh, and then I didn't help by the clothes I was wearing, um, you know, but that's what everyone was wearing at that time. Mm -hmm. I just kept wearing them a little longer. than right. <laughs> And the hair, too. I, I heard once yeah, that you said yeah. Bowie, Bowie actually got you to cut your hair. So that's a pretty yeah, interesting and, Yeah. And, and when I when Comes Alive came out, um, Roger Daltrey, um, who I know, for years, obviously, is and and Roger was sitting in a club or a bar or a restaurant. I don't know where. And uh, this <laughs> some girl came. This is the Tommy look, right? Like my look. And uh, so this girl comes up to him and says, "Can you sign this autograph for me?" And and so he said, "Yeah." So he signs Roger Daltrey and gives it back to him. No, no, <laughs> Peter Frampton, aren't you? He cut his hair so quick. I think. Before dessert, he cut his hair off. Not a not a bad guy to be compared to. 
<laughs> Peter, this has been such a thrill. Um, when you were diagnosed and you announced your farewell tour, I was, like a lot of people, heartbroken. And so it is incredibly exciting to see you still out there touring. Uh, my best to you. I uh, uh, hope the rest of the tour goes well. People, if you go to uh, Frampton.com, that's where you can get tickets for the remaining shows in November. Uh, again, hopefully, maybe I'll see you at one of those in, in November. That will be great. And, that will uh, be one. It, this was a real fun chat. And uh, hopefully you can come back again and finish the conversation at some point. Okie dokie. Well, when you mix the track for um, Michael Row the Boat, uh, make sure you put a nice limiter on my voice and all that stuff. Sure. We have a team of engineers in our studio. That we're gonna be. Pro it'll probably take us about six months to get this episode together. Yeah, and and uh, we'll work on that specifically to make sure it's just perfect. Auto-tune the whole thing. Absolutely. You know. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe just like maybe sample in some Taylor Swift and make it. Would you make it contemporary? Very good, very good. Thank you. Alrighty, take care, Peter. All right, thanks so much. This episode of the Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg, and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.